We are in John chapter 17. It's page 903 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. Beginning in verse 24. Jesus is praying and says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. These last weeks we've been looking at the things that Jesus prayed for his church. He prayed it first for the disciples, those who are immediately around him, but he also prayed for those who would believe on account of their word the same thing, and so that includes us. So we've walked through those things. There have been several characteristics that Jesus, I think, prayed in John 17 that would be characteristic in the fabric of his church. One was, way back several weeks ago, was joy. He prayed, as it says in the text in John chapter 17 and verse 13, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy, Jesus is talking about his joy, fulfilled in them, that we would be full of the same joy that Jesus had. And I believe that that joy was uh, a joy that was anticipatory in many ways. He was anticipating um, being reunited with the Father and fulfilling the work that God had called him to do. But the, the reuniting with the Father, the joy that he experienced in that perfect union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the beginning, a joy that did did not have to be um, disrupted in any way, a, a perfection that did not have to be disrupted in any way. There was nothing that compelled him to leave that unity of the Godhead to come, but in all eternity past, God chose. The Father chose that he would send the Son. The Son would come and would experience brokenness, and experience the brokenness that we feel, and enter into it fully, and ultimately die. He came to die. But in all of that, even in the midst of that brokenness, he talked about, the scripture talks about the joy set before him. Jesus endured the cross, and I think the joy was the anticipatory joy of what he would accomplish, and he would be reunited with the Father along with his own, those the Father had given him forever and ever. I I take that from the text in verse 5 where it says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus was looking forward to going back to that union with the Father and, and the Spirit, but not alone. He was going to take a host and will take a host from every kindred, tribe, and nation to enter into that joy and fellowship as well. And so we, we really talked about that the foundation of our joy is in that reconciliation that's accomplished in the cross. It, it should be foundational, I think, to the life of the church that we realize all that Jesus did and paid and, and joy rises up from that. In fact, all of the, the ministry this week, um, 
needs to be on that foundation of that reconciliation, the foundational message of Christ. This, just a side bit this morning. I don't want, I won't spend a lot of time on this point. We've talked about it before, but I just began in my Sunday school class this morning a new section of teaching on on uh, how to fight for joy. When the, the, the actual title of the study is "When I Don't Desire God, How to Fight for Joy," and and we've already told the class, and I tell you as well that the 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 premise of it is we fight with the promises of God, and He will show us how to functionally fight with the promises of God that that joy might be the foundation of our of our life and of the church. And so if you're not in a Sunday school class, it'd be a great time to plug in, a great time to slip into my class. That's kind of a commercial this morning, but I'd welcome you to come and experience that. And it will just reemphasize this, this principle that Jesus prayed for his church, that they would, they would be full of joy. The second uh, truth that I think he prays for them is that, that they would be people of truth. The scripture says in verse 17, thy word is truth, your word is truth. And so we need to be people of the word, of the promises. You you cannot effectively live your life for Christ and with Christ and as his as as part of those he died for without the word you you must have it in your life it must it must be underneath you if you are to to function as as a believer uh, it it's paramount that truth the word is is integral to our lives and to the life of the church um i shared this illustration this morning because it, it does several things for us. It, it certainly affirms what happened this week in the lives of the children. But, but what is most significant in the lives of the children this week is that, that they were taught the truth of God's word. Your word is truth. Um, and I ask you, and it's always dangerous in this kind of setting to, to tell somebody something and say, don't tell anybody, but I'm going to tell you that. Don't don't share the names of this and the specifics of this. You can share the general principle of it. Part of it I waited till the children actually were away from us because it, it has to do with the two little girls that have lived with us for about 15 months, Natalia and Caitlin, in, um, in foster care. They, they have been a part of our family. But they were in Bible school all this week. In fact, they've been in the fabric of this church, one of the wonderful blessings of of. of being able to have them in our home is you and, and how you have integrated into their lives and the church is part of their lives and, and worship and the word and teaching and all of that over these months. But one of the natures of, of just foster care in general is the unpredictability of the future. That's, that's why we have them. They have an unpredictable future in the sense of, I don't know what's going to happen for sure as as we go forth we're hopeful and we're praying but we don't know for sure and so on friday night after the picnic after all the vbs had gone on um caitlin um expressed you know the the question this is where i want to be careful about names as you understand this now i mean what um, what's going to happen to us and and unbeknownst to us in the last couple of weeks they had found out some information that we didn't know they knew we we thought it, had they known it, we knew it a couple of weeks ago. If that information had come out, surely they would. It would have popped up someplace, and it would have come out. And so we were kind of waiting for it to come out. We assumed they didn't know, but what we 
thought they didn't know they did know. They just kept it for a couple of weeks. And so on Friday night, as Kay was putting them to bed, and in that setting of them being tired and kind of settling in and, uh, and hopefully feeling secure, that question came out, what's going to happen to us? And, uh, and, and Kay began to answer that, but before she could get the words out, the one who asked the question in the setting answered it. God knows the future. God knows the future. Where did that come from? It came from a week of being taught about Joseph. It came from a week of, of hearing that God knows the future. And he's got it under control. And, and uh, all of that. And so I say that to you who are weary this morning, really weary this morning after the week. That's the kind of thing to build that into the lives of our children and of our body. We, the word is truth and we need it. It must undergird us. It must catch us. At even the youngest of ages, it catches us and it sustains us. And uh, I'm grateful for that. So then, then we moved on to the fact that not only should God's church be a joyful church and a truthful church, bedrock on truth. But thirdly, it, it, it should be a, a holy church. And the word holy isn't used in the text, but a word that means that. And I take you to verse 19, and it says this in chapter 17. And for their sake, Jesus said this, I consecrate myself, or you could substitute the word, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And what the word sanctified means is that they would, would, would be made holy, progressively made, be made holy. Um, that's what he prayed for the church, that, that we would be a holy people, a sanctified people in that sense. And uh, it's, it, the word that I substituted as we came through the series was I, 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 I talked about holiness, I talked about sanctification, but I, I really think in a broader sense what it means is to be a distinct people, a distinct people who certainly are holy. But it's more than just that, I think, that distinction. Because in, in many ways, um, when we think of the word holy, oftentimes we, we, we think of things that need to be put off. You to be holy, you put some things off, which is true. Scripture says put off some things. I remember personally, my own life, back in 1973, I didn't grow up in the church, but I remember, as I've told the story, attending a Youth for Christ concert, and, I, and God had done preparatory work in my life, so it wasn't as though all of a sudden this was the first time I had heard any of these things. But, but I, that evening, I was given the opportunity to, to, to give my life to Christ, to trust Christ as my Savior as a senior in high school in February of 1973, the year I was graduating. And that night, I, I, did, I did respond to that invitation to trust Christ, to follow him. And I went forward with a group in my high school auditorium and was told some things at the end that I don't really remember all of that. But one thing I do remember, one thing I do remember that, that I realized that to follow Christ... I, I had to put off immorality. I had to put it off. I, nobody told me that. 
Nobody said anything to me. They didn't tell me that as I went forward. But there was just a sense in my life that anything that had to do with that, I just need to put it off. And there were some things in my life that I had to put off. And, and I did put them off. Perfectly, no. I, I'm not going to say that all of a sudden I was perfect in that regard. But there was just a sense. I knew there were some things to put off. And that was one of them. I just need to be put off and to, to come against it in my life. And so we understand that. I think when you, when you come to Christ, you just understand some things to put off. But the problem is sometimes we don't realize that it also says to put on things. It, it put on some things. And so that's why I like the word distinct. We're to be a distinct people. Obviously distinct people in some things we put off. But, but also a distinct people in things that we put on. And one of the things we talked about were were some of those things. And, and they came out of a Sunday school series that, that I had taught earlier and that Dave Palmer had taught in a different class and the gospel-centric living. And, and in that sense, it talked about some other things and some different ways about being a distinct people. In other words, being a distinct people that were joyful in a suffering world. I mean, one of the things that the gospel does is it causes us to be able to be joyful people in a suffering, broken world. You're distinct, because that's not the way the world operates in the midst of suffering, to be joyful. But you can be joyful in the midst of it, because you understand this is not all there is, and there's a hope beyond that. So joyful in a suffering world, or generous in a stingy world. The, the default of our world is to be stingy. And, and for Christians, we ought to be generous, because of what's given to us, we're to give. So to be generous people in a stingy world or truthful people in a confused world was one of the lessons. And then one of the final ones was a serving people in a selfish world, in a world that wants to run everything through themselves, in a world that I think if we look back in a generation, if we look back of, of, of people who live on the earth at this time, they're going to do an account of our generation. They're going to say they, they, they always took their temperature first. How does this affect me? We're so into that in our culture. But to live beyond that and to be a, a serving person in a selfish world, not, not taking your temperature, not always asking how this affects me, but actually forgetting about me, that's countercultural. And that's what we're to put on. That's what the gospel does. That's what, what happens when we're, we come to life in Christ and we begin to see the glorious truth of reconciliation and experience it in our lives. So just as, just as that day um, I came to Christ, I, I just knew there was some things to put off, immorality, just put it off. I mean, I knew I had to come against it. I knew I had to fight it in my life. And also, we should understand that these other things should be part of it. We should become truthful people, confused world, serving people in a selfish world, generous people in a stingy world joyful people in a suffering world. All of that. So we talked about that in the context of what it means when Jesus, part of what it means in that text where it says, as you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. I sanctify myself. Jesus is talking about that, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So part of what that is, is that, that I talked about, becoming a holy, a distinct people. But there's more in that because it's interesting. In that text, it says, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified or I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, there are two parts to that sanctification. I think a a distinctness that I've already talked about, but also 
a distinctness for mission. That, that it's a dual kind of thing that Jesus was praying there because when Jesus says he consecrated himself or I sanctified myself, he didn't have to make himself distinct. He was already distinct. He was God in the flesh. He was already holy. He didn't have to make himself holy. He was holy. He was the essence of holiness in the flesh. Perfection in the flesh. So what does he mean? I consecrate myself or I sanctify myself. I make myself more holy? No. I think the part that Jesus is talking about is I consecrate, I set myself to love them to the end, if you will. To show them the full extent of my love. The mission. I consecrate myself to the mission that the Father has sent me on. And because I'm distinct, because I'm without sin, and I fulfill that mission, I will do a dual thing in their lives. I will, I will sanctify them. I will, I will make them a distinct people set on mission. On a mission to go to a world who needs to hear the message of my love. And so we talked about the dual part of that, of Jesus consecrating. He, he was distinct and he was distinct on mission. And we should be the same. We should be the same. That, that we should be that way in such a sense that it causes people to scratch their heads. It causes people to say, they tick in a way that I don't tick. They operate in a way that I don't operate. In fact, it's foreign to me. I, what, what is it that causes them to do what they do? with the passion that they do it and the joy that they do it. What is it? It's what I think Peter meant when he said, always be ready to give people an answer to the reason for your hope. Your hope. So that was another. And then we talked about unity. The Sunday before, uh, Sunday before last, I wasn't here last week, but we, we talked about unity. That the church should be unified. It should be together. And so we ask, what does that mean? Not unity for unity's sake, because there's some unity that would not be good. I mean, we could, we could have a unanimous vote to do something incredibly immoral. And that would not be the unity God is talking about. He's talking about a unity. What, what kind of unity? Not unity just for unity's sake, but a unity that has some distinct characteristics. And, and three of those that we talked about, there could certainly be more, but common convictions about Christ. I think the unity that he's praying for is a common conviction about Christ, who he is, why he came, what it meant for him to show the full extent of his love, the cross, all of that. A common conviction about Christ and his work and what it accomplishes. Also, a common confidence in Christ, a common conviction about Christ that leads to a common confidence in Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, anything else, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's where we stand. Not only do we have a common conviction about who he is, but we have a common confidence about where our hope resides and nowhere else. It's in Christ and in his work, in his finished work. I've made the comment that, that you, can, you can meet somebody for the first time 
And uh, in, in many cases, if, if they're a, a believer in Christ, if they share a common conviction about Christ and a common confidence in Christ, there is a kindred spirit that develops very, very quickly to somebody that you never knew before. In a matter of just a few um, minutes or maybe a, a couple of hours, you build a bond that is just absolutely unique with that person. Such a bond with them, and I have had this happen in my life. There, there was a, a young adult, I was a young adult once, back then. He was a young adult. In those time, after I'd come to Christ, he just happened to come into the community. I pastored for two years as a youth pastor in Kansas before I came here in 1979. But he came during that time, he came just to work for a, a few weeks in the summer, and I developed a relationship with him in a a very quick time around these things. And even to this day, I'm confident that if I would run into him, I've not seen him for nearly 40 years. But if I saw him, I could sit down and go right back to the level of that relationship with him, even though there's 40 years of not really conversing at all. There's something about a unity that develops around those things. And then out of that, it leads to a common concern for one another, care for one another. That's what brings us right back to where we were, you know, even after all of that lapse of time. I think that's the unity, um, a dimension of the unity that Jesus is praying for his church. And now um, we want to conclude it. I'm not, I won't be long here in the last one, but a very important one. And that is that the last characteristic, the last ingredient that Jesus prays for his church is love. That they would be a loving church, a loving community. It's interesting that he ends here. I don't think it's because it's the least important. In fact, I think it's kind of the glue that glues everything else together. Jesus said earlier on in John 13, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, I don't think he meant, you know, throw out joy, throw out holiness, throw out truth, throw out mission, throw out unity, and just love. That's all. I think what he meant is that Actually, love is an ingredient of all of those things. In fact, think about it for a minute. If you have joy and you take love away from it, what do you get? Hedonism. Just do what feels good. Whatever produces the greatest momentary joy, do it. That's what hedonism is. You take love out of it, that's where it will take you. You take holiness and you take love out of it, And it leads to self-righteousness. It leads to something that is very, very nasty in the church. Self-righteousness is is deadly. It's, It's the lack of love in holiness. Truth without love becomes bitter orthodoxy. Bitter orthodoxy. Stale orthodoxy. You you know the right answers, but it's it just is bitter. Mission without love becomes imperialism. You're just imposing it upon people, stiff-arming them, if you will. Or unity without love. Unity without love becomes tyranny. So if you take love out of all of those, you're going to be in trouble. And so love is not the last one on the list. It is the one that should permeate all of those things. Now, what I want to do in the next few minutes is just to 
look at how Jesus talks about that love, how he describes it. And what I want to do is I just want to pick apart the text, really, as you look at it in verse 26 on. Let me read verse 26 to you again. Jesus says this, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What I want to do is just walk through those those words for a minute. He starts out by saying, I make known your name. Now the question, we're talking about love. It's an ingredient that he prayed for. So what does that have to do with love? What does it mean and in what ways is, is that connected to the love that he talks about later in these, these couple of verses here? What is it? Well, I think for his name to be known, what Jesus was talking about is I made your essential nature known. To make God's name known is to make his essential nature known. And so what Jesus did in coming, God in the flesh, is he made known the essential nature of God the Father. That's the beauty of the incarnation, that God didn't stay away from us. He came and showed us his essential nature. If you've seen me, Jesus said what? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So he reveals the nature of the Father to us. That's what it means to make known his name. In, in the Psalms, there's, the psalmist says it this way, those who know your name, and, and it, really what that again means, knows your essential nature, The psalmist doesn't say it that way, but he says, those who know your name, and I define that as your essential nature, will trust in you. In other words, if you know who I really am, that's what it means to know his name. If if you know my name, you will trust in me. That's what the psalmist says. You will trust in God. If you know his name, well, it's not just his name, Jehovah, or whatever name you want to pull out of the Old Testament or New. It's, it's essential name. His name defines who he is. That's why there's so many names of God in Scripture, because he's, God is multifaceted who he is. His essential nature can't be contained really in one name. And so his name is reflective of his essential nature. God came to show us. Jesus came to show us who God is in his essential nature. To see what God is like. In verse 17, chapter 17, verse 6, it says the same thing. He says, I have manifested your name to people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them your, the words that you gave me, and they have received them. They, they received Jesus. His own received him because they came to see who God was. They received God. They received God in the flesh, Christ. But if you've seen him, and you've received him, you've received the Father. You see, it's the same. He's the same as the Father. So he came to reveal the essential nature of God, and he says, they have... They have witnessed my nature, and they have come to know my name, and they've received me. Thomas says, those who know your name, who really know what your essential nature is, will trust in you. And so we can say the people who are not trusting in God today, 
They really just don't know who he is. Because the psalmist says, if you really knew who he was, you would trust him. So, it goes on to, to, to show us that there's something unique, this essential nature. When, when, when Jesus comes and manifests his name, it, it's a God like no other. No other God is like this God, has ever been known like this God. In fact, because of that, when they go to translate love in the New Testament, they have to find a new word and almost redefine a word that doesn't have a lot of baggage, and they almost redefine that word to express who this God is, agape, because there's never been a love like that, and particularly as you talk about God. Never before a sacrificial love like this God. In verse 25, if you look at the text back of verse, it says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you. What does that mean? It doesn't know you. It, it does not understand the essential nature of who God is. That's the definition of the world. It doesn't know you. It doesn't know who you are. It doesn't, it doesn't understand who you are. And therefore doesn't trust in you. Definition of the world. When you look at text of scripture, the definition of the world is they don't trust in God. Why don't they trust in God? Because they really don't know who he is. That's what Jesus is saying. Even though the world does not know you, I know you. I know you, Jesus says, and and these know that you sent me. Who are these? His own. Those who have embraced Jesus coming because they've seen the essential nature of God. James Boyce, in his commentary, uh, about this particular text. Let, let me read it to you. I'll help reiterate what I just said about, about God's name manifesting who he is and the fact that never before has there ever been a God like Jesus, who was a reflection of the Father. It says, when Jesus says the world has not known God, he means, besides everything else, that the world does not know God as a God of love. This was demonstrably true in Jesus' day. No Greek, no Roman, no Egyptian, no Babylonian in Christ's day or in any of the centuries before had ever thought of God's nature as being essentially characterized by love. It is just not there. Read all the ancient documents and you simply do not find this element. At best, God was thought to be impartial. Or if one choose to think optimistically, God could sometimes be said to love those who love him meaning that he might be favorable to them for their service. But this is a tit-for-tat arrangement. You serve me, I'll take care of you. Not the benevolent, unmerited love of God disclosed in the Bible. It simply does not exist in antiquity, apart from the preparatory form within the pages of the Old Testament. With the Lord Jesus Christ, an entirely new idea entered history, for he taught not only that God is loving, but also that he loves with an extraordinary love entirely beyond all human imaginations. That love has sent Christ to die. Moreover, on the basis it would now draw a host of redeemed men and women into an extraordinary family relationship with God. So let's move on to the text a little farther. Verse 26 says, I made known to them your name, Past tense. I made known to them your name, your essential nature. He's done that. 
made known your name, your essential nature to them. And some have embraced it because they saw God's essential nature as love and they embraced the message, they embraced Christ, they received Christ and his teaching. But then it goes on in verse 26. Look how it says, I've made known to them your name, past tense. And, it's not all, and I will continue to make it known. That's future tense. What does that mean? What does it mean in the sense that that's future tense? In what ways was he going to continue to make it known? Remember our prayer time? He loved his own, but now he showed them the full extent of his love. The full extent? What was it? The cross. So I think what Jesus is thinking here is, as I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known as I embrace the cross, as I embrace what's coming, which was not very far in the future. Remember, this prayer was just before Jesus entered into that excruciating time and was crucified. He's saying to them, I will continue to make it known. And, and what we've already said is true, that the apex of God's love, as I said to you this morning, and I, and I, and I, I said that possibly there's somebody here who, who's saying, if I only knew God loved me, I would serve him. I would follow him. If he just would show me that he loves me. If I just knew he loved me. What does Jesus say? He says, I've made known to them your name, your essential nature, and I will continue to make it known. I will go to the cross, the apex of it, to show it. The sacrificial love of the Father for a people. That's where to look. That if you want to know if God loves you, just start looking at the cross and what it accomplishes and what Jesus paid in going to that, the price that he paid. And, and that's why in our, in our church we talk about being gospel-centric. In order to, to live out of the love of God, you have to continue to be reminded of the love of God. And where do you remind it of? But in the cross, in the gospel. The gospel is For unbelievers, certainly, but it is for believers to feast upon, continually to be reminded of the love of God that compels them because that's where it takes us. Look at what it says in the text. It says, I have made known to them your name, your essential nature. I will continue to make it known. I will show the full extent of my love and your essential nature in the cross. And then it says this, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. That the love with which you love me may be in them. title of my message is to love like God. That's exactly, I think, what Jesus is saying. That as people begin to see your essential nature, and receive it and believe it and believe all that the cross is for them. And, and they witness that sacrifice. It, it causes them to come to life and, and to want to reproduce that in the world around them. We're to be a picture of the love of Christ to the world. Uh, there's a text, we don't have time to go into it in, in the, 
in the New Testament says that I, I fill up what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. And what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions isn't that he didn't do it sufficiently, but what is lacking is the personal presentation of that suffering to the world. Jesus has gone to the right hand of the Father. Now, it's the church. It's those that are being prayed for that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, that they may then in turn be the sacrificial picture of the love of God. Now, let me close this morning and close by reaffirming kind of what happened this week in this place, in BBS. My wife crystallized this for me this week as I was as I was uh, coming through Bible school, we came to the close of it and I was getting prepared to share here this morning. She, she made a statement that just resonates with me and, and I want to share it with you and it fits what we're talking about here. Because I think what, what people in Jesus' day who, who embraced Jesus saw was that sacrificial love. It, it just, they saw the essential nature of God the Father as one who sacrifices for people, and they embrace that sacrifice. Well, take now back to VBS for us here. Um, this week, we have one of the things I'm amazed at. We have an incredibly broad grouping of gifted people. I mean, I just am amazed at the gifts that you exercise, which I think is the way the church should be. This text doesn't talk about gifts necessarily, but others do, and that gifts should be exercised. And I'm grateful for the, for the plethora of gifts that are here and in those 70 or so people who served during VBS and others who probably weren't even in that number who did things, I know did things, that wouldn't even been counted in that list. Incredible giftedness. And I, and I witnessed that giftedness in so many ways. And so many pictures of how you did things and, and worked this week. But that's not, that's not the key ingredient there. It's not the giftedness. It's not all of it. What my wife said to me this week is what, what God has given us is, is a giftedness, a plethora of gifts that were exercised. But the key word is exercised that people sacrificially exercise those gifts. Because just to have the gifts isn't enough if you don't exercise the gifts. If you don't, as Jesus, it'd be the same thing in that text as we began. Jesus, Jesus had good intentions. He talked about and revealed the heart of the Father. But if he didn't love them all the way to the end, if he didn't put the sacrificial part of it in it, which didn't just all happen at the end, there was some at the beginning, but if he didn't, if he didn't do it all the way to the end, just good intention. The world is full of good intentions. The world is full of gifted people who have good intentions of doing some good things. The difference is when they sacrificially push through doing those things because they're motivated by the love of God. I think that's what this text is talking about. When he talks about having the love with which the Father loved the Son in them is that it's rooted in the love of God for us and we exercise those gifts. I have said a number of times here in, in recent days um, that 
um, that children's and youth ministries are, are integral to our church because of where we're located, because of our locality. If we don't do those things, um, I just don't think we would continue to be here. I think part of why we're still here, located where we're at, 15 miles from the closest community and have people from dozen or more communities that come to us on Sunday morning. I just think children's and youth ministries are part of that. But again, that's not going deep enough. What, what, what goes deeper is that people use their giftedness in sacrificial ways to go to those children like this week. And a picture of that um, I, it, it's always dangerous to, to tell one snippet and affirm one thing that happened when dozens upon dozens upon dozens of these illustrations could be given this morning. I think I picked one that will not get me in trouble. And, and it was on Friday night when I'm at the picnic. And, you know, we've been fed well, but that's not the illustration I'm telling. But it's after it's all over, the meal's all over, and I'm unwrapping... Um, my napkin, I mean, I, I pulled my silverware out of it, so I didn't fully unwrap it. But after I'm done, like, like I tell my little girls, you need to wash your hands. So I open the napkin to wipe my hands off, and what falls out of it but a towelette? A wet towelette falls out of that. Now, had that towelette not fallen out of that, or had it fallen out of it, and I'd not noticed what it made any big deal, what I thought, man, these people are really stingy. They just don't, just won't do anything. No. I mean, it didn't have to be there. There's no reason for it to be there. No expectation of it to be there. But it was there. And that was a perfect picture to me of what happened dozens upon dozens upon dozens of times this week. And why God works in the midst of that. Gifted people using their gifts in a myriad of ways in sacrificial love. In sacrificial love. That's what I think the text is talking about when it says that the love with which Father loved the Son may be in them. May God just continue to stoke that. Continue to stoke it by the gospel. By Him loving us. It is It is there. It is there that the... F- flows out of. We're going to sing this morning. And I pray all of these things for us as a church, all of the characteristics that we've talked about. But this morning it's love. And I pray that we will be a people who are willing to sacrificially love like our God. Let's stand. Sing together.
perfect man to love me to the end to show me the full extent of his love may it be true of us as his followers may we be those who show the full extent of your love father by sacrificially being willing to give our lives away for the sake of others hearing the message of reconciliation. Help us, Lord. Strengthen those who are weary this morning because they have done just that. I pray there will be great joy in that weariness. Joy, Father. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Go in God's peace.